0: See, we're in Math. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 22. Paul is in Jerusalem. Um, he has uh, endured not one but two different riots. The first one was on a massive scale, uh, possibly thousands of people involved in that, and that was in the temple complex. Um, and, uh, he was like to be torn in pieces by, uh, those who were accusing him falsely of all kinds of things. He was rescued by the Roman, uh, soldiers, uh, that remember in the corner of the temple compound was this castle that was built called, uh, uh, castle Antonia. And the Romans occupied that. It was on high ground. That way they could look out over the city at any time. If there was any kind of unrest or uprising, uh, the captain could dispatch soldiers there and they could deal with it quickly. Jerusalem in Roman days was a very volatile place. Jerusalem in 2023 is a very volatile place. It always has been. Um, Paul was rescued from that, and as he was being escorted up the stairs into the castle, Paul politely requested of the captain, he said, Can I speak to the people? And the captain gave him uh, leave to do so, and the Bible says Paul beckoned with his hand, and for some reason the crowd got silent. He spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue, and they grew even more still. And so Paul began to preach to them. This is in Acts chapter 22. He shared his background. He told how he met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. The crowd was listening respectfully, uh, very, very intently to it, until he mentioned that the Lord sent him to be a, a, a witness to the Gentiles. And at the mention of the Gentiles, that crowd just flew back into a frenzy. uh, Away with this man. They wanted nothing to do with him. And so the captain, fearing lest Paul would be torn in pieces, uh, escorted him back into the castle um, and called a meeting of the Jewish Sanhedrin to come the next day so he could figure out what in the world this was all about. He's a Roman, he would speak Latin, he would understand Greek. But he probably did not understand much of the Hebrew, so he didn't didn't comprehend Paul's sermon at all. So the next morning, the Sanhedrin came in with the chief priest, and uh, that did not go well. Uh, It ended up, they started fighting with each other. Paul realized half of them were Pharisees, half of them were Sadducees. And Paul himself was, by by, uh, his family tradition and history, he was a Pharisee. The Sadducees, as you know, did not believe in a resurrection. Uh, they didn't believe in the spirit. They didn't believe in angels. And uh, the Pharisees, they were more, actually more the fundamentalists of their day. Uh, they believed in all of those things. They just weren't willing to acknowledge Jesus to be their Messiah. So Paul just, you know, trying to get somebody on his side, I guess, said, you know, I'm the Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. For the hope of the resurrection, I've been called into question. And no longer are they worried about him. They're now fighting amongst themselves. And uh, once again, the Roman captain just sees turmoil and rescue Paul and brings him out. Last week, we spent our time on one verse, chapter 23, verse 11. The night following... The Lord stood by him, this is by Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. We learned last week that there are at least four times recorded in Scripture at at four very difficult times in Paul's life and ministry that the Lord stood by him and spoke to him directly. We don't know if it was by means of a dream or a vision or, or uh, you know, an appearance. We have no idea. Uh, the Bible doesn't go into that kind of detail, but every time it was the Lord encouraging him, uh, letting him know you're not alone, I'm with you, and this was one of those moments in Paul's life. Uh, we surmise that he's probably feeling a little down. Um, he had come to Jerusalem with high hopes. He, he was bound in the spirit uh, to be there. Uh, I'm sure he wanted to see his people, the Jewish people, saved. That was his burden. We've looked at that in several places in the book of Romans, and it didn't happen. In the same place where Peter preached on Pentecost and 3,000 people were saved and baptized, Paul got a riot for preaching the same gospel message. Um, and the next day didn't go any better. Not only has he been a failure, he's been beaten. And, and he's, uh, he's, he's bloodied and bruised and sore. And that has to be playing on him mentally and emotionally and so forth. And so it's important that the Lord came to him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. Paul, this was not a failure. This, this, wasn't, this wasn't a bad thing. Uh, cheer up, Paul. And he said, as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so thou must bear witness also at Rome. In other words, I believe it's the Lord saying, you did a good job. You were a good witness for me here. And may I say and remind us again, we are called to be witnesses. We can't make people get saved. We cannot make people be receptive to the message we have. Um, but we are called and commanded to be a witness and at least give them the message. And, and the Lord is pleased. And now he says, You're not, you, you've witnessed to me here now you're going to go to Rome, and I want you to be a witness to me there. That vision was certainly uh, to encourage Paul at a time of distress, but it may have also been some preparation. Look at verse number 12. We're going to see that a conspiracy is formed. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 which made this conspiracy. So uh, Paul is unaware of this yet. He will be shortly. Um, The the enemy seldom ever goes away. Uh, the, The enemy is relentless, and Paul is about to find that out. So the Lord has encouraged him the night before about the events that have already taken place, And I believe that encouragement is also, uh, fasten your seatbelt, Paul. There's more to come, but you don't have anything to worry about. I'm right here with you. Can I get you to keep your place here and turn all the way back in the Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, chapter 54. Isaiah, chapter 54. It would not surprise me that the Apostle Paul was familiar with this. He was a Bible scholar. The Old Testament were the scriptures. Verse number 17, notice what God has to say. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Certainly, this is a promise to the nation of Israel. Anybody in here, though, a servant of the Lord? Anybody here? You realize this is a promise we can grab a hold of. Um, uh, Notice it again. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. There's a promise of God, and Paul is about to see that promise fulfilled in his life. Uh, Let's look at this conspiracy. Uh, uh, Notice the curse in verse 12 again. This group of Jewish people, we know there were more than 40 of them, bound themselves under a curse, meaning if we do not fulfill this, um, then the worst should come upon us. We should die as a result. I mean, this was a... This was like a blood oath kind of uh, a thing that they were taking. And here's the curse, that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. I, I'm sorry, every time I read this in the Bible, um, I, I have this sense of humor that sort of creeps forward. Does anybody know how long Paul lived after this moment? It was more than 40 days Forty nights. He lived for about another decade, somewhere between six and ten years. These guys said, "We are not going to eat or drink till Paul is dead." They were pretty hungry guys by the by the time that happened. Uh, what a weight loss plan, uh, the conspiracy diet. Um, but they they came uh, you know together, banded with this. And notice in four, uh, verse fourteen. They got a company of leadership to join them. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse. They're taking this seriously. This is not only life and death for Paul, but in their minds, uh, they think they're doing the service of God and they're willing to die for it, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now, therefore... Ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. So far, they hadn't inquired anything. They just got into a big fist fight the day before. Um, and we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. So notice that they went to the, the uh, again, the chief priest. And the elders, this would be the Sanhedrin. These people are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. These are the ones that that claim authority that comes all the way from the law of Moses for the chief priest, all the way from the priesthood of Aaron. But these conspirators that are plotting to murder a man, they're gonna murder a guy because they don't like his message They've taken upon them an oath saying, we're not going to eat or drink until he has died. They call it a great curse. It is a binding oath that they've taken. They go to the spiritual leaders and they lay out the whole plan. And the spiritual leaders go along with it. It is amazing how people who have an agenda will set truth aside as long as it promotes their agenda. Are we not seeing that in the political world? It's kind of always been. It's not something new, but in recent years, it, it's to the point. That, does it ever infuriate you to see? Remember the Russia deal? Um, they didn't care what truth was, as long as the, as long as it was part of their agenda, and so these supposedly spiritual people uh, are are quickly and eagerly drawn in uh, to this. Um, this sad testimony, it's, it's, it's revealing their true nature. Uh, by the way, just because a crowd is united on an issue doesn't make the crowd right. It, it, it really doesn't. Let's look at another Bible example, 2 Samuel 15. We'll come back here tonight. I'd like to finish this chapter, and for those who want to laugh, we may just do it. 2 Samuel 15. David had a son by the name of Absalom, Absalom was a very vain and prideful young man. The Bible said from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head there were there was no blemish in him. He he was one of these guys just born with with good looks and physique. Uh he was popular uh, he had fallen out of favor with his father when uh, he took justice into his own hand and, and killed his uh, half-brother Amnon. Amnon had committed a crime. David did nothing about that crime, so Absalom took matters into his own hand. After a number of years, David finally let Absalom come home. Uh, the, the, the damage was done in their relationship and so forth. Look at verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots, and horses, and 50 men to run before him. He had an entourage before that term was coined. Um, And he had a a fancy chariot and horses, and he had groups of men running before him. They may have been armed, more than likely. They had trumpets, at least. They They were announcing his arrival. Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's just say that uh, these four walls are the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and this is the city proper, okay? And that is a city gate. Back there would be a city gate. There was generally one gate, often referred to in the Old Testament as the king's gate, where the king would come and sit, and he would sit in judgment. Rather than going to a courthouse, you would go to the gate. It was done this way to make sure that there were no... uh, you know, backroom shenanigans going on, that everything was out in the open. uh, And everyone had the right to come before the king um, to, to hear their case if they weren't able to get anybody on a lower level type court to deal with that. So Absalom would come every day and he would just notice this. The Bible says he stood beside the way of the gate, not right by the gate, just the road that led up to it he just, he's standing there. Um, and it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, of what city art thou? And he said, thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. So Absalom would just watch all these people lining up. And this is, Jerusalem was a big city in those days. But the matters that, that came before the king weren't just the people of Jerusalem. It was from all over the nation of Israel. They would all come there hoping to have an audience with the king because the king's word was final. The king's word was law. So Absom just stand there. He'd call to them, hey, friend, where are you from? And he'd name, "Well, oh, maybe yeah, I'm from Ephraim or maybe I'm from Simeon or one of the tribes of Israel and, and so forth. Verse 3, Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right. There is no man deputed to the king to hear thee. No matter what their side of the argument was, he always took their side. Yeah, you have a really good case. It's too bad that the king hasn't appointed a lawyer for you, somebody to stand here and help you out. And Absalom said, moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, That every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me and I would do him justice. Um, as if David wasn't going to do that. As if when Absalom was king, that he would be able to get things done any faster than his father did. But people are listening to him and they're thinking, yeah, these lines are so long. And, and, uh, yeah, we know you're, you're sympathetic to us. And, you know, we always like the people that agree with us, don't we? Uh, You know, if they're taking my side, they must be pretty intelligent. Uh, It was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, remember his entourage is sitting there, the chariot, the horsemen, the 50 guys, and all of that, he's the king's son. So, you know, they would want to come down and and bow before him and and honor him and so forth. He put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. This isn't some romantic thing. Uh, It's a sign of respect and honor. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He didn't care about them. He just needed them on his side. He had an agenda. And uh, we're going to find out most of the people, they did not know about his agenda till it was too late. It came to pass after 40 years. This probably doesn't mean 40 years went by. It probably means when Absalom turned 40 years of age. um, Absalom said to the king, I pray thee, let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed unto the Lord in Hebron. That's where Absalom grew up when his dad first became king. For thy servant vowed a vow while I abode at Gesher in Syria, saying, the Lord shall bring me again indeed to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. He's trying to sound spiritual for his dad anything but. And the king said, And go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. But Absalom spent, sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as ye hear the sound of the trumpet, then ye shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And, and with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called. They went in their simplicity. They knew not anything. Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Was Absalom right or wrong? He was dead wrong. He was in the wrong entirely. Um, he is, he is, uh, not being honest with anybody. He's lied to his father. He's lied to these people. Uh, but notice he leaves with 200 men and people just keep getting added and added and added. That conspiracy is, is strong. Again, the point is just because there's a crowd doesn't, doesn't mean that they are right. Truth is what makes things right. Especially the truth of God's word. Chief priests and the scribes, they should have never entered into any kind of agreement that was going to result in the murder of someone. The law that they supposedly were there to uphold forbade that type of behavior. But they're more than willing to do whatever it takes because it's part of their agenda. So we see this, uh, this conspiracy is described for us here, but then it's discovered. Look at verse 16. When Paul's sister's son, that's his nephew, heard of their lying in wait. Remember, Paul was from a family of Pharisees. His dad was a Pharisee. He himself was. It, it doesn't surprise us that possibly his brother-in-law may have also been a Pharisee and had had something to do with the, the work of the Sanhedrin. We don't know who this man is. We don't know his name other than that he was Paul's brother-in-law and, and uh, they had a son and somehow he heard this conversation between these 40 conspirators and the Sanhedrin. He went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Apparently, Paul was allowed to have visitors. Um, he wasn't under in like some kind of dungeon or anything at this point. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him And said, Bring this young man under the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. Now it's amazing that Paul is a prisoner, but they're all gonna listen to him. He says, This boy just came to me with some news. Take him to the chief captain. He's got something the chief captain needs to hear. Question Why do you suppose they're gonna listen to Paul? Linda? He's a Roman citizen. See, they've already crossed the line with him because the chief captain almost had him scourged contrary to Roman law. Um, and, and so they're all a little antsy about this guy. So if Paul is speaking, and they also add most of these soldiers don't even have Roman citizenship. They are owned by Rome and they serve Rome, but they're not considered uh, a citizen of Rome. Um, and so he took him, verse 18, and brought him to the chief captain, and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, what is that thou hast to tell me? They would have been, the Roman soldiers would have been well aware of all the intrigue that went on in their conquered territories. And Jerusalem was no different from that. Remember, we talked back in chapter twenty-two. There had been an Egyptian uh, who got a group of murderers, and the word is the Sicarii. They were assassins, and they were infiltrating all through the land of of Israel, uh, trying to take out Roman leaders, Roman soldiers, anybody that they could. So when this chief captain is aware that something's going on under his watch, and it somehow it deals with this prisoner named Paul. He, he's going to be very cautious, so they go aside into a private place uh, and, and so forth. Verse 20. And he said, "This is the boy. The Jews have agreed to desire thee, that thou wouldest bring Paul to, bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly." But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait uh, for him of them more than 40 men which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the young man tells the captain all about it. Uh, Their conspiracy didn't stay a secret very long. Um, Keep your place here. Can I get you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10? Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And look at verse number 20. This is some wisdom given to us by King Solomon. Curse not the king, know not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. How many have ever heard the phrase, a little bird told me? That's actually from this verse of the Bible. Uh, and so Solomon's saying, just, you, you just be real careful. He said, you think it's a secret, but God has a way of letting those things come, come to uh, uh, knowledge and so forth. And so uh, the, this, the, the, the secret and the conspiracy is discovered and uh, so forth. And uh, I want you to notice the, the response of this chief captain. Verse twenty-two. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, "See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me." So he, he's he's now asking this young man keep the secret, uh, and probably because it's family, uh, he's he's counting on that. But the chief captain is not going to wait around. Uh, this guy is going to bring the entire might of Rome to Paul's defense, and again. The reason for that uh, is more than likely because Paul is a Roman citizen. If this chief captain lets anything happen to him and Paul gets killed under his watch, it will not just be Paul's life that is forfeit. It might be his as well. To lose a prisoner like that uh, says that you do not have control of your situation in your area. Uh, he could be demoted at the very least He could be imprisoned, he could be tortured, even put to death for dereliction of duty. So this captain, his antenna's up. He's already made one mistake with Paul by almost scourging him and he's gonna protect this prisoner at all costs because his neck is on the line. He called on them two centurions. That is a, a, a captain or a leader over 100 soldiers. So there's 200 soldiers. He says, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. That is 74 miles from Jerusalem. Okay? We can drive 74 miles. If you're on Route 15, you can do that in about 20 minutes. <laughs> um, but, you, but you realize back in, in uh, those days, even on horseback, that is a long journey. Uh, but that's about how far it is. So they're going to take 200 soldiers and horsemen, three score and 10. That's 70 more, uh, and spearmen, 200. This is a formidable army. See, he knows there are at least 40 assassins out there. He has no idea who they are. He has no idea if some of them are working in his household. He doesn't know if some of them are, they've been hired by the Romans, uh, you know, to to sweep the stairs and mop the floors and uh, to cook for the Roman army. He has no idea when he looks around if this person's an assassin or not. So he's taking no chances. So he's got 200 soldiers. He's got 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. How many people's that? 470 people to guard one guy. That's a small army, and they're armed to the teeth, and they're the finest soldiers that the world uh, had ever seen. Um, and the Bible says so. they got them at the third hour of the night. That's about 9 o'clock at night. Sanhedrin's disbanded. By law, they weren't allowed to meet after uh, about 6 p.m. As soon as the sun set, by law, they weren't allowed to meet, but we know from the, the uh, trial of the Lord Jesus, the law doesn't mean a whole lot to this crowd. So it's nine o'clock at night. Most of the town is shuttered um, and, and everybody's inside. And uh, he's going he's gonna to send this, this group out. Verse 24, provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix, the governor. So uh, he's sending him north to Caesarea. He's getting him out of his hands. Felix is the governor over that whole region. Uh, Name another governor that was over that region just a few decades prior to this. Caesar Augustus was king. He was emperor. How about Pontius Pilate? Okay, so Felix is there. Felix was appointed uh, about AD 52 by the emperor of Rome. Um, uh, He was known for his very ruthless Authoritarian practices. He was well aware of the Sicari, the assassins. They had made a few attempts on his life, his family's lives. So when he caught them, uh, he made public displays. Most of the time, that he had them crucified uh, and so forth. Uh, Felix was a no-nonsense guy, and uh, so so this this Roman chief captain is thinking this is the safest place for Paul. Because the Sanhedrin's going to be awful careful what they do around him, um, he wrote a letter after this manner. And I got to remember the history of this man with Paul and all that. And I'll just consider his letter. Claudius Lysias, that's the chief captain unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. Normal, normal, dear John type thing. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. What are you thinking, Ken? What's that? Well, it's kind of, isn't it? He, he's, he's not totally lying. He's leaving something out. What, what did he leave out? Linda? Linda? Yeah, he was going to have, remember, he's going to have him tried by scourging, which could have resulted in his death. He totally whitewashes the whole thing. You know, I, I knew that he was a Roman, and man, I saved him. He's, he's showing himself in the, the best of light. He's a politician in the making. When I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, which is true, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. Here he's telling the truth. Um, But again, it's just the way he put it out there. He left out anything that he might have done to mess this up. uh, That's not in the letter at all. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him, farewell. Short and sweet. Goodbye, my job is done, it's yours. Ta-da, the buck stops with you. Uh, And uh, so forth. So you just realize Paul is going in in the midst, this one little born-again Jewish preacher is on a horse with 460 armed-to-the-teeth people. Nobody's getting to him. None of those assassins are in that group uh, and so forth. Uh, Verse 31, then the soldiers as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. They're headed north. Antipatris is about 41 miles from Jerusalem. They're traveling all night long. Um, Normally, night travel would be dangerous, but not with a a Roman army surrounding you. Nobody's going to mess with these guys. They got that far on the morrow. They left the horsemen to go with him. They figure they're out of, out of Jerusalem. They're far enough away. Uh, so those 70 horsemen uh, are now with Paul and the rest of them return to the castle. who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. So Paul's in an entirely new venue. He's in front of a Roman governor. I mentioned this a week or so ago. Beginning in chapter 21, when that riot and everything began to take place, Paul will never be a free man for the rest of his life. For, for part of it, as we'll see at the end of the book of Acts, he'll be under house arrest for a while, for a couple years. Um, we, every now and then, he'll be given a little bit of liberty and so forth, but he'll never be free. He is a prisoner of Rome, and he will be a prisoner of Rome until he dies. But read through the epistles of Paul. I kind of challenge you by way of homework. Uh, Start at the book of Romans, okay? And read all the way through Philemon, and you will never see Paul call himself a prisoner of Rome. Does anybody know what he calls himself? A prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul never saw himself as anything less than that. Uh, I'm here for Jesus, uh, his freedom is gone, but, but, but his faith is not. He's going to serve God to his dying breath. And every, every place that he goes, he's, gonna, he's either going to write a letter that's going to be included in our Bible, he's going to preach a sermon. Believers are going to come to where he's getting from one ship to the other. They're going to meet him. They're going to pray together. Uh, they're going to move on. That man never, ever, ever stops serving Christ. So Jerusalem humanly speaking, has been a disaster. But for the apostle Paul, everything about it has been victory because he did exactly what God told him to do. We tend to look at results. And if things turned out well, well, then that that certainly was of God. But sometimes that's not true. Uh, Sometimes the results don't give the whole story. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is what counts, and Paul has done that. Verse 34, when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was and when he understood that he was of Cilicia, Cilicia, remember that's the, it's a Roman city. It has Roman protection. It has Roman rights. This tends to make all the Romans in Paul's life sit up and take notice. They're going to be careful how they deal with him. He's under special legislative protection by them. Uh, Isn't it amazing how the Lord puts all those little things together in our lives for for just such a time as this? And he says in verse number 35, this is Felix speaking, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Herod, King Herod, built Caesarea. He had an incredible palace there. Herod had an in-ground heated pool. In Caesarea, think about that. The guy was a genius uh, at at how he did things. Uh, the judgment hall was not uh, what we would consider as a prison. Uh, it is it is sort of a room off of the courtroom. Um, and that's where Paul is going to stay. It's it's probably not the shabbiest of places. Uh, it's probably got a modicum of comfort compared to the fortress of Antonia that he stayed in. And Paul is going to stay there for about five days, and then things are going to ramp up again. And for all the naysayers, did I not finish chapter twenty-three? You cannot even believe that that happened on a Wednesday night. My whole my my whole uh, lessons that I would like is to sort of draw from this particular uh, study tonight is God's in charge. If you're walking with God, you're serving God, you're doing your best to be right with God, God's gonna, God's gonna take care of you. He's watching out for you. That doesn't mean you're not gonna go through hard times. Paul's going through a lot of them here, but God's on his side. Fear not, Paul. Be of good cheer. I'm with you. And God's gonna appear to him in in, in situations far worse than this one, and he's always going to find out God is there. Um, Faithfulness is what God's called us to. And in these last days, as we get closer and closer to the Lord's return, faithfulness is more important than ever, ever before. It's time for us to just stop sitting back and coasting along, but to be faithful all the way unto the end. And understand this, uh, God is bigger than any problem you're ever going to face ever going to face. Um, And he has it all figured out in advance. Isn't that something? God's got it all figured out in advance. Trust him on that. The question is, if it was us in this situation, would we have been as faithful as Paul or would have we just given up? Would we have given up on God? Would we have lost our testimony in the process of fighting fire with fire? Um, Paul is one of those men that his story... History, his story is given to us here for us to learn from because he was an incredible believer he was a great preacher he was a great author he was mightily used of God but the foundation of everything he was just a great Christian and i'll never be an apostle i'll never write a a, a single word of divine scripture or anything like that but I have the same God and the same Holy Spirit. Could I not be a great Christian? Yes or no? Could you be a great Christian? Absolutely. So shall we? Let's leave with that thought. Father, thank you. Thank you for the testimony of this incredible man.